Thank you. It's, it's really a blessing for, for all the friars to be here today. And let us pray to the Blessed Mother and ask her to send the Holy Spirit and give us enlightenment as we, as we consider this beautiful dogma and pray about what we can do to usher in both the proclamation of the dogma and the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. So let us pray to the Blessed Mother, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Co-Redemptrix, Mediatrix, and Advocate, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what I want to talk to you about today is the co-redemption and spiritual warfare. And when we talk about spiritual warfare and the co-redemption, what we mean, first of all, is Our Lady's engagement in spiritual warfare. But after that, we mean also our own. And isn't that really what we've been talking about, especially when Dr. Mark was talking about how important the prayer is? Because if we look at the prayer of the Blessed Mother, what we're praying for is the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we're asking the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of all the nations. We want the Holy Spirit to transform our own life so that we might be um, defended against degeneration, disaster, and war. And somehow Our Lady says if we pray that prayer, if we pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit through her, if we pray for his life within us, that's not only going to preserve us against um, uh, degeneration, disaster, and war, but somehow that's going to bring the dogma. We don't actually pray for the dogma in the prayer. And yet Our Lady is saying this has to be prayed in order for the dogma to come. It's because the coming of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of the world in which we live and the dogma and the acknowledgement of Our Lady in this role are integrally linked. They're, they're so closely related that to pray for one is to pray for the other. So I want to talk about then uh, an apparition of Our Lady to Ida Pitterman on... Um, May 31st, 1955. And this is all about spiritual warfare. She says to, to Ida, Satan is not yet expelled. The lady of all nations may now come in order to expel Satan. She comes to announce the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will then come over this earth. You, however, shall pray my prayer, which I gave to the world. Every day and every moment, you shall think of the prayer which the Lady of all nations gave to the world at this time. How strongly Satan is ruling. God alone knows. He now sends his mother, the Lady of all nations, to you, to all the nations. She will defeat Satan as has been foretold. She will place her feet upon Satan's head. So Our Lady comes on that day in 1955 and she says to us, through Ida, that Satan is at work and he's powerful. He, he, he's ruling, she, she says. Uh, he, how strongly Satan rules at that time. And yet at the same time, like in the prayer, she announces the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come once Satan is expelled. 
and it'll be connected to the prayer. Every day and every moment you shall think of the prayer which the Lady of All Nations gave to this world in this time. And so as we think about the prayer and our praying of the prayer and what it means, namely that the Holy Spirit will come to live in us, it's also about our own spiritual warfare. Somehow the prayer links us to Our Lady. We're praying indirectly for the dogma, but we're praying for our own sanctification. We have to link ourselves to the Blessed Mother in spiritual warfare. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we, in Our Lady, can bring about the triumph. What we need to do. And it's true, evangelization is very important. There's no doubt about it. But the prayer is so important because we individually need to be transformed. And there's something extremely powerful at, at, to, to the hand of everyone. We all have access to something that, that's extremely powerful in this regard, and we're implicitly praying for it in the prayer. And I'll get to that. The interesting thing I wanted to point out is that this was 1955 when Our Lady um, talked about this spiritual warfare with Ida and about the coming of the Holy Spirit and that Satan was not yet expelled. Well, in 1961, about uh, six years later, John XXIII convoked the Second Vatican Council on December 25, 1961. And what he did, uh, Mark talked about it earlier, not specifically uh, the Pope, but he talked about the theme. He, he called for a new Pentecost. He said, Divine Spirit, renew your wonders in this our age as in a new Pentecost and grant that your church, praying perseveringly and insistently with one heart and mind together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and guided by blessed Peter, may increase the reign of the divine Savior, the reign of truth, justice, the reign of love and of peace. So, John the Twenty-Third had been um, elected Pope just shortly before, and nobody thought that he was going to be Pope for very long. They, they sort of thought he had been elected to be sort of an interim Pope, and suddenly he calls an ecumenical council, which was a huge thing. It was a huge inspiration on his part for a new Pentecost, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the council's fathers met, you know, and a lot of changes came through the convocation of the Second Vatican Council. And then about 11 years later, in the wake of, of, the, of the Second Vatican Council, John, uh, Paul VI was forced to say that it appears that the smoke of Satan has entered into the church. John XXIII talked about opening the windows, updating uh, Catholic life, addressing issues of evangelization, addressing the problems of living in the modern world. And instead of the church evangelizing the world in some respects, not totally, but in some respects, the world ended up evangelizing the church. And Cardinal um, Virgilio Noe in 2008 knew what the Pope meant when he said, um, smoke of Satan has entered the church. He specifically meant the way that we worship God. He says because of the liturgical abuses, and, and, but everything flows from that. It, wasn't, it, was a dis, it was a decline of morality and culture, but particularly within the walls of the church. So 
you can see how in the, way, in, in the wake of this call for a new Pentecost, all hell broke loose. At the moment that, that Our Lady, the Church, the Holy Father is calling for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Satan pushes back. You know, it was at the same time that the Council was going on that, say, for example, the sexual revolution exploded. Everything changed very quickly. And culture became far more secular. And unfortunately, that secularization in many ways entered into the church. And we're still sort of trying to, to pull ourselves out of that. And this effort to have the dogma proclaimed is at the heart of this. It's at the heart of this. Because this is ultimately a war between the Lady of All Nations, the woman clothed with the sun, and, and Satan who at that time had not yet been expelled, and in a real sense, has still not yet been expelled. I don't want to concentrate on the problems. I want to concentrate on the solutions. But it's important for us uh, to at least talk about some of the problems, because Our Lady did in this message to Ida. She said, you will go through a great deal yet in this century. You nations at this time know that you are under the protection of the Lady of all nations. Invoke her as advocate. Ask her to stave off all disasters. Ask her to banish degeneration from this world. From degeneration comes disaster. From degeneration comes war. And here you know she's talking about the moral decline. Moral decline that we experience everywhere and which, you know, in one way seems to be getting worse all the time with an attack on marriage, the family, on human life, um, on, the, on, on the sanctity of just about uh, everything. Uh, but in a particular way, it's not the worst sin of all. It's not the worst sin of all by any means, but the saints, the great saints and doctors of the church, especially those who were interested in a particular way in morality and in the practice of hearing confessions, have all said that, that, that impurity is such a snare. And we're li living in horribly impure times. And, and if we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit and our own, uh, we want to be, be instruments in the hands of Our Lady for the proclamation of the dogma and for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's always going to be about our staying not only right with God, but making our, our spiritual life most fruitful. Most fruitful. And for that... It's really the old-fashioned religion that we have to cling to. Just the, the meat and potatoes of our holy religion, which is what Our Lady gave us, for example, at Fatima. Frequent communion, frequent, frequent confession, attendance at Holy Mass, and a sincere desire for repentance. A sincere desire for repentance. And with respect to impurity, you know, degeneration and impurity are almost the same thing, if you think about it. With respect to impurity, it's the occasion of sin. If we don't remove the occasion of sin from our lives, we're, we're not going to get better in terms of, of our, our, our conversion. And particularly with respect to, um, to impurity. I'll talk in a minute about um, what Our Lady says about alarming inventions, but one of them which is not, I'm not against technology, don't get me wrong, I've got a computer here, not against technology, but the internet 
is a tool of Satan. It's not a bad thing in itself. But, you know, the Internet is like, you know, artificial intelligence almost. I mean, they talk about this. But it's a place where Satan can snare people. And Internet pornography is an epidemic problem. Even secular uh, psychologists who have no interest really in Christian morality acknowledge this to be a fact. If your eye is the source of your sin, tear it out. Our Lord uses hyperbole. But the fact of the matter is people very often fall into the same sins over and over and over again because they don't remove the occasion of sin. It's very simple. It's not easy, but the solution is not complicated. It's really very simple. We have to have the will to do it. And if we're going to be Our Lady's instruments, we have to do these things. Um, she also talks about false prophecy. She says, My admonitions, do not listen to false prophets. Listen only to your shepherds, to your ministers, to the voice of your conscience, to a higher being. And, and I say this for those who do not belong to the true church. So she was speaking to all of us. But in a particular way, for Catholics, it means ultimately listening to the Pope. And we live in a time, this has been one of the problems, in which, in which there are many voices, in which there's a great deal of confusion, in which children uh, lose their innocence at a very young age because they're hearing voices that are not, that are not telling them the truth, that, not, that are not telling them the, the teaching of, of Jesus. And so there are many false prophets today. Um, and and there's, there's only one uh, solution to that, and that's to cling to the teaching of the church, no matter what. Uh, no matter what and, and, and wherever. And the dogma, you know, is implicitly our uh, assertion, our affirmation, our conviction that the church is, is the rock. That the Holy Father is the rock, and that the power of truth is greater than the power of evil. The triumph and the dogma really are the same thing. When the truth is proclaimed about Our Lady in all its fullness, her power will be uh, released. Um, when she talks about false prophecies, so she's talking about false teachers, but we could also, uh, false, uh, false teachers, false doctrine, but don't forget about false mystics as well. You know, there are many voices. And there's lots of people that want to say they speak for God. And we need to be really careful about that. You know, uh, we, we try to support the, the, the approved Marian apparitions that are rooted in the, the, the structure and, and the providence of Holy Mother Church. That's our protection. Everybody is looking for an experience of God. We all want to find God. But we need to make sure that we are, are rooted in the, in the right direction and keep ourselves uh, focused. Um, another aspect of, of false prophecy uh, is, is really false, uh, false religion, or I call it pseudo-mysticism. You know, people are looking for shortcuts. You know, we live in an age that is addicted to getting things quickly. People complain because, you know, their movie doesn't download quick enough on their, 
on their phone or whatever. And uh, we don't have patience for, you know, just going through uh, a disciplined spiritual life. And if someone tells us they've got a shortcut, you know, it sounds good. And sometimes uh, things that sound too good to be true really are too good to be true. Um, and the church nowadays is, is very uh, concerned about this, and it has reason to be uh, concerned. The occult is, is rampant. My experience as a priest uh, shows that that's true. Um, and I've been in discussions with many people about, for example, Harry Potter, and, and um, you know, a lot of, lot of people have a lot of you know, good arguments, they might say, but the fact of the matter is the occult is a real problem. And people get sucked into it in sometimes subtle ways because they're looking for an easy road to God. They're looking for the experience of God. They're looking for something that uh, doesn't require them sometimes to repent of their sins. And it, and it won't work. The only thing that we can do is remain, uh, is remain faithful uh, to the Lord. So there really are no shortcuts and don't try them, you know, because uh, it's offensive to God. It doesn't give glory to the Blessed Mother and it opens the door. Spiritual warfare requires that we cling to our holy religion and stay away from other things. Stay away from the yoga and the reiki and uh, Harry Potter and, and all the rest of it. You know, it's everywhere. It's all over television with the vampire stuff and, and Twilight. Um, and a lot of it's make-believe, but what you see on the level of make-believe, what you see on the level of culture, is being assimilated in many other, other levels. You go to belief dot, beliefnet.com, for example, which, in which a lot of um, very popular Christian and Catholic writers write. But, Google, but search Wicca, search occult, search... Um, uh, Reiki or Enneagram or anything, and you'll, you'll have page after page of, uh, pay after page. This is not an occult website. This is belief, beliefnet.com, which is supposed to be a, a fairly respectable sort of generic religious website. Generic religion is always going to embrace neo-paganism. You've got to stay away from it. And, and this is... Um, this is, this is the false prophet. This is the false voice speaking in our world today. Then Our Lady talks about alarming in inventions in a prophetic way. Uh, you know, the A-bomb was already invented, you know, but we've refined the art and technology of killing people. There's no question of that. And we, you know, have a right to defend ourselves and we give thanks for all of our brave servicemen and women overseas and all the good that they do in defense of our country. But, you know, the whole idea that we can do whatever we think we're capable of, of doing. We've, this has happened also, of course, in biotechnology with the refinement of birth control and abortion and um, uh, embryonic stem cell research and cloning to the point now where people are actually seriously talking, scientists are seriously talking about what they call transhumanism, which is basically making, you know, the Terminator reality or, or these ideas of the, of the unity of machine and human. 
it's not something that's totally science, you know, science fiction of yesterday is, is technology and science of today. And people don't have a conscience about these things. They don't have a conscience. And, it, and it's related also, this is also related to the occult, because the whole idea of magic is to obtain something quickly and easily, uh, no matter what the cost, even if you compromise your, your moral integrity. Somebody who's willing to do magic is willing to offend God and put themselves in contact with spirits, at least the origin of which they do not know, because that way, it, it's easier that way to get what I want. God doesn't listen to me, but somebody else does. And I can obtain my goal in that way. You know, that, that tech, in that sense, technology sometimes and magic can be, be very similar things. And in these ways... Uh, the blessed, you know, the blessed mother is warning us about about the way the devil works. As I said, the internet—it's not just the internet nowadays. I mean, uh, everything's connected. Everything. You know, if you if you have a phone, for example, that has um, GPS, and you have your GPS on, and you take pictures, and you put a, put it up on Flickr, you have a GPS stamp on those photographs, and people that look at your Flickr account can find out where you were at what time from the GPS stamp, unless you have it disabled. You know, I mean, just, just the level of connectivity and, 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 and the way in which um, there's no privacy, no secrets anymore. Um, and not only that, uh, but um, the way in which it's fracturing our society way that people carry on relationships more on the internet than they do in real life. Destructive to the family. So none of these things are bad in themselves, and I'm going to end there. I don't want to make this whole thing negative. But these are very, very real dangers, and Our Lady wants us to recognize these things, but to focus now on, on the solution, which is, which is the Blessed Mother herself, of course. She is the solution. Um, so I want to talk about Our Lady and spiritual warfare the co-redemptrix and spiritual warfare. If you really think about it, the whole of sacred scripture is spiritual warfare. As soon as our first parents fell from grace, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. So the whole of the gospel was preached in prophecy to our first parents in that one verse. I'll put enmity between you and the woman between you, uh, God was speaking to, to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. She will crush your head and you will strike at her heel. That is, that is the promise of redemption. That's the whole proclamation of, 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 of the gospel. And God is revealing that there will be ultimate victory, that the serpent's head will be crushed which is what our, what our Lady said to Ida in that first part of the Revelation on May 31st, uh, 1955. The serpent's head will be crushed, but it will be the woman and her child together. However you translate that verse, and I'm not going to get in there, get into that, but however you translate that verse, that verse means that the woman and her seed, her child, are united. And the first time that sacred scripture speaks about Jesus, it calls him the seed of the woman. So the two are united in the crushing of the serpent's head. And if, and if you think about 
what the rest of sacred scripture is, all the prophecies of the Old Testament and all the typology of the Old Testament, and then its fulfillment in the New Testament, you see it as a living out of this warfare between the, 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 between the, the woman and, and the serpent, the woman and her seed and the serpent and his seed. All of the rest of sacred history is the living out of that. Spiritual life is warfare. It is warfare. But the promise is a promise of victory. If we embrace the truth, the fullness of the truth, if we accept the woman as our queen, just as we accept uh, the, the seed uh, as our king, ultimately victory is assured. But from the very beginning, the first time that God reveals the, the, the truth about redemption, it involves the woman. That is something that we have to keep ourselves focused on. So when sometimes people say that our beliefs about the Blessed Mother, Mother are not really scriptural, when, when God chooses to summarize the whole of sacred scripture, the whole of sacred history in one verse, he makes it really clear, really clear what he's trying to tell us. So you have the woman of the promise in Genesis 3.15. And if you wanted to sort of squeeze down a lot uh, of what sacred scripture tells us about the co-redemptrix, you could squeeze it maybe into these three places in a particular way where she is mentioned as the woman. In Genesis 3.15, and then uh, I'm going to skip over Cana, but he, our Lord also speaks to the Blessed Mother uh, in that, under that title at Cana, as Mark was pointing out to us. And if, if, if our Lord is saying, get ready, He's also identifying her as the woman of the promise. He says, woman, what is this to thee and to me? My hour has not yet come. So he's using a word so that later on when we read the scriptures, we'll know that he's referring to the woman of the promise. All right? So I'm going to skip over to John 19, where our our Lord bequeaths uh, St. John to the Blessed Mother and the whole church to her, and where... uh, she is entrusted to, to St. John. But, the, but the, the real core of what our Lord is trying to tell us there is that we need her. That is the moment of the birth of the church. Uh, John Paul said that just as our Lord's heart was opened with the lance and blood and water flowed out, symbolizing you know, baptism and the Eucharist, the birth of the church, so Our Lady's heart was opened with the words, woman, again, the woman of the promise, woman, behold your son. So there's a birth here. Uh, there's, there's a beautiful crucifix at all, that is near and dear to all of us Franciscans called the San Damiano Crucifix. And this was the crucifix that appeared to St. Francis or animated, came alive and spoke to St. Francis. And in the crucifix, it's an icon. It's a Byzantine icon that has not just the figure of our Lord, but it has many other figures uh, along the, the arms and, and down the, tra- the, the, the length of the crucifix. And it's unique because usually when you have a crucifix in which Mary and John are portrayed, you usually have uh, Our Lady on one side of the crucifix and John on the other. But in this particular representation of the crucifix, uh, both John and Our Lady on Our Lord's right side. Our Lord is slightly twisted to the right 
and he's looking slightly down, and, and down beneath him on his right is St. John right next to him, and then Our Lady. So St. John is sort of pressed between the heart of, the, of our Lord and the heart of the Blessed Mother. And the wound in our Lord's side is open. He's, it's a complicated crucifix because he's both alive and dead. He's standing upright, but his heart is already open. And the, and, and the blood and water is flowing out, and it's really flowing right on John, right on his head, really. And, and St. Francis saw himself when Jesus came alive in that place, in the place of St. John. Franciscans have always had this tradition, so I was in Assisi, I think, last year, and went down to the tomb, the crypt where the body of St. Francis is, and at the altar where, where uh, the body of St. Francis is, this little, little altarpiece, crucifix, and it had um, what they call the rood, which is the crucifix and John and uh, Our Lady, Our Lady and John. But it wasn't John, it was St. Francis. So Franciscans sort of substitute St. Francis for St. John there. But that's really all of our place. We're all in that place, you know. And, and the early biographers of St. Francis said that at the moment that Jesus spoke to him from that crucifix, his heart was pierced. You know, at the end of his life, he had the visible stigmata. But the, his biographers say he received invisibly, not, not physically, but in his heart at that moment. He conceived a compassion for the Lord. Co-redemption is compassion. That's what it is. It's compassion. Our Lady suffers with Jesus. That's what compassion means, to suffer with. Our Lady suffers with. She's, she stands there in solidarity with our Lord. And in her solidarity, she offers her heart to, Jesus, to, to the Father. She offers Jesus, and she offers her heart in union with Jesus. That should be something that we're all familiar with. Why? I mean, we all are supposed to do that in a particular way. Where? In the Mass. Remember when John Twenty-Third was calling for a new Pentecost? And one of the ways in which he wanted to um, transform and update the church was through the liturgy because the church wanted us to participate in the liturgy actively, wanted us to understand what we were doing and live what we celebrate in the liturgy. Not just priests, everybody, all lay people. Remember, that's what, what John the 23rd wanted. And Paul the Sixth, you know, 10 years later said, the smoke of Satan has entered in the church. And the thing he meant most of all was the way that, that the Mass was be, being celebrated. Not because of the new Mass, but because things had just gone crazy. Well, the reason is because what the Church wants is for all of us to stand at the foot of the cross and offer Jesus to the Father and offer our own hearts in union with Him. That's what we need to do. That's what we're supposed to do at the Mass, and that's what the world needs right now more than anything else. And that's why when Our Lady says the dogma will come through the prayer, but in reality what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit living within us, it will come when we are living these mysteries. We have to live the mystery of the co-redemption. We have to you know, do this before anything else. We need to evangelize. We need to promote the prayer. We need to understand what it means 
to talk about Our Lady as co-redemptrix, but most of all, we must live this mystery. The third place that uh, we hear about Our Lady as clothed as, as the woman, and this is, has in ref this is again in reference to the co-redemption, is in the Apocalypse, chapter 12. The woman clothed with the sun. And what is she doing there? She's glorified. She's clothed with the sun. She's standing on the moon. And she's crowned with 12 stars. This is an image of glory. She's in heaven. And yet, at the same time, she's also in travail. She's about to give birth. And it's a complex image which indicates both the suffering of Our Lady and her glory. And her suffering there is not the childbirth of Jesus, which was virginal and painless. Her suffering there is her suffering at the foot of the cross. It's her giving birth to the church. And yet it's glorious. It's glorious. In her suffering, she experiences the glory. And so there's always a sense of, of already and not yet within the church. There's already a victory. There's already the presence of Jesus. There's already the triumph. And yet it's always coming as well. And somehow in, in, in the already, we have to bring about the not yet. And we have a part to play. So Our Lady tells us at Amsterdam that our prayer is important in all of this. That we have to pray the prayer in order for all of this uh, to happen. And, it, and it's a voice to, to the whole world, as the, the Apocalypse was. The Apocalypse was written in a time of persecution. It has a lot to do with coming times, but it was also something that was written to the churches of the time, because there was persecution. And the church needed to see that their suffering had meaning, that it was really a victory. That's why St. John, for example, talks about the Lamb who was slain. The wedding feast of the Lamb is also the wedding feast of the Lamb who was slain. But the, the Lamb is also a lion. And, and when our Lord comes in, in the cha 19th chapter riding on a white horse, he comes as, as a victor. And yet it comes in a time of persecution. That letter is given to the churches in a time of persecution because that wasn't their experience. Their experience wasn't seeing our Lord ride in to the ancient world on a white horse bearing a sword coming out of his mouth and with flame, eyes flaming fire and casting down all the enemies of the church. They didn't experience that. But St. John, through the revelations given to him, was telling the church, this is the reality. This is the reality. And so... You know, you, you have this cosmic battle of spiritual warfare that goes on in Genesis 3.15, is consummated at the cross, and then continues throughout history as is represented in Revelations 12. And sometimes in the prophecies of the Old Testament, you see this uh, laid out for us in a very dramatic way, as for example with Judith and, and her cutting off the head of Holofernes and you know, a type of our, of our Blessed Mother. And we see it in the, in the history of the church through, you know, the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. We, we celebrate, uh, you know, October 7th as the, as the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary because of this great victory of the church 
preventing Islam from taking over Europe in 1571. We see it played out at a, in Our Lady of Guadalupe, in the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But the reality is, the, the basic reality is, is that this spiritual warfare goes on in our hearts. Our souls are the territory of, that is being fought over. And Our Lady ultimately will be victorious, but we have to, we have to fight the good fight. We have to enter into this spiritual uh, warfare. Um, and so, what can we do then to bring about the new Pentecost? You know, the dogma in the end is really an act of, of praise to God. You know, we praise him for his mother, for the masterpiece, which is the co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate. And it's really, it's really a work of justice. We're not, we're not making something true. We're just acknowledging something that already exists. And it's really just that Our Lady should be treated with this honor. She deserves it because it's true. And it's an amazing thing. And it's a tremendous fact that God has chosen a mere creature to share in his work in this way. And it, and it, and it proclaims what John Paul II called the gospel of suffering. That suffering has a salvific value. That it is... It, it, is, it is a victory. There's a victory in suffering. We don't see it. We don't experience it. But it's, it's what we all believe. It's why our mothers told us to offer it up. You know, it's a very, very Catholic thing. It's a fundamental Catholic. It's what makes us Catholics. It's that we believe that our suffering has purpose. That there's a dignity to human suffering. And again... It's what the church called for when it called for active participation in the Mass. It doesn't mean reading at Mass necessarily or bringing up the gifts, which are all good things, don't get me wrong. What it means is that whatever we do, whatever changes come about in the liturgy, help us to understand what we're doing at the Mass and help us to approach the altar and receive Jesus in Holy Communion so that our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings are united to him and they're more perfectly united to him when we are united to Our Lady, when we understand her compassion, when we understand her suffering and we're, when we are able to understand that she gave praise to God, she made an act of faith and even joy at the foot of the cross. I remember um, 10 or 11 years ago when we had a symposium, I think it was our first symposium, in England on the co-redemption, late uh, Father de, de Marjorie talked about in a homily, I'll never forget it, about the joy of Our Lady at the foot of the cross. She had sorrow. It's a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. Of course, she had sorrow. She was very sorrowful. But she chose to praise God. It was a choice. We can't wait until it just bubbles up inside. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Praise and joy are a choice. It, it's, it's, the, it's a function, it's the result, it's the consequence of understanding the fullness of the truth through the heart of Our Lady that no matter what happens, if we are following God, if we are consecrated to the Blessed Mother, no matter what happens, it can be transformed into something that's beautiful for God.
whatever suffering, whatever temptation, whatever sorrow, whatever difficulty we have, it has meaning. All right? It has meaning and it has value before, before the throne of God. And so, you know, gratitude, joy, and, and praise of God, that's spiritual warfare. A grateful heart casts Satan out. It's Satan that drags us down. You know, I tell people, you know, that it's not, God does not bring discouragement. Discouragement is never a function of God's grace. It's always the old boy trying to drag us down. We need to praise God. And, and, and what better praise to give to God than to give him the praise that, that was given to him by the Blessed Mother. That's what we're fighting for in the church. And it's that which will help us to usher in um, the new Pentecost. You know, it's, it's really that uh, and only that. So to conclude then, you know, in 1955, Our Lady's talking about uh, announcing the Holy Spirit. The prayer talks about this. And she warns us that Satan is not yet expelled. Uh, and then the church, through the Vatican Council, invokes the Holy Spirit, says we need a new Pentecost. And this call, is, as Dr. Mark was pointing out, has been renewed by, uh, by Pope Benedict. It was renewed uh, in a way in 1998 uh, on Pentecost by, by John Paul II. He says we need this grace of the Holy Spirit. But we are right now in the hour of the Passion passion of the church and the, and the passion of, of the world and our own willingness to see beyond it you know to unite ourselves to Our Lady to live the mystery of the Mass um, to pray the prayer to mean what we pray to mean what we say to live it to allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to live in our hearts this is what's going to change, change the world and, and in, a, in a real sense you could say as, as Mark again was pointing out that um, this is the Marian age in a particular way, you know, the great prophetic grace, the great charismatic grace, the great intervention of the Holy Spirit in our times is this message. It is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. Things will not change until there is a triumph of the Immaculate Heart. We have no choice in the end but to acknowledge the truth and humble ourselves the way Jesus did. We are really doing nothing more than he did. St. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians that we should have the mind of Christ. Have in you that mind which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Where did he empty himself? He emptied himself in the womb of Our Lady. And our job is to empty ourselves in, in, into her heart, into her, her, to entrust ourselves to her. If we do that, things will change. And, and that, is our, that is really the spiritual warfare. It's either this or nothing. You know, it's like what Simeon said, you know, uh, a sword, sword will pierce your, your, your heart, your soul, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. That's the secret thought in reality. Are we going to accept her or are we not? Are we going to make that act of humility 
and conform ourselves to Jesus? Or are we are in, our, in our pride going to reject it? Ultimately, in the end, the dogma will be an act of humility on the part of all the church to acknowledge this truth and give praise to God and rejoice in the triumph that will be ours when it is accomplished. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for all your benefits. We beg you to repay with eternal life all those who do good to us in your name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray the, um, I, the prayer of Our Lady. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, send now your Spirit over the earth. Let the Holy Spirit live in the hearts of all nations, that they may be preserved from degeneration, disaster, and war. May Our Lady of all nations, the Blessed Virgin Mary, be our advocate. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.